So Psalm 21, which we're going to look at today, is a psalm that has been read and prayed and reflected on throughout the history of Israel and the Christian church. I want you to imagine this morning, though, that you are in exile. We are, in a sense, uh, reading this psalm, but you're in exile when Israel is in Babylon, just to give you some context as they're thinking about this psalm. Um, listen. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. You can kind of picture uh, the writer of the psalm is on a journey. Most likely this is a psalm of ascent, so it's a picture of someone making their way up to Jerusalem. And he lifts up his eyes to the mountains, and when he does that, it prompts a question uh, out of him. From where will my help come from? And you wonder, what about the mountains prompts this question? And possibly two ideas are going on here. One, he's feeling a sense of anxiety. You see, the mountains were the place where thieves, uh, brigands, uh, <laughs> Uh, people who would attack him would hide. The road was this perilous journey, and all of a sudden he looks at the mountains, and, and he's reminded he's really not all that safe. Anytime you went on a journey in that day and age, you were making yourself incredibly vulnerable. You didn't, you didn't travel with a, a, a group of guards to protect you. So he's feeling some of that anxiousness about this journey. But, but another possibility, and this may be going on as well, the mountains uh, um, in that day, in ancient times, were a source of illegitimate or at least imaginary help, uh, uh, idolatry. You see, the, the, during the time the Psalms were written and sung, Palestine was overrun with pagan worship. And, and much of that religion was practiced in the hilltops. They would put up shrines, they would plant groves of trees, uh, there were sacred prostitutes, both male and female, uh, people would be lured into the shrines to engage in acts of so-called worship, uh, and those acts would, they thought, enhance the fertility of the land, and there were all kinds of rituals of protection, spells, enchantments, especially against the perils on the road. So he's, he's looking at the mountains and he says, well, maybe that's a source of protection. So he asked the question, where will my help come from? Now, before we move on, I, I think there's a couple things we want to wrestle with. Uh, we, we first of all have to understand the, this notion of help. The Hebrew word is ezer, and it is an interesting word. It is actually the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 when God takes Adam and 
creates for him a helper. This is someone to come alongside. This is someone to partner with. This is someone to help you reach your goal. Uh, Last week, I got five yards of mulch delivered to my house. This is an biannual ritual. We have to spread mulch all over. And I'm out and it's hot and I have a wheelbarrow and a shovel and my kid, my son is in New York. This is not a good situation. (laughs) My neighbor comes home and he walks up and he says, you look like you need a helper. And I'm thinking, no kidding. (laughs) He says, well, I'll be out in a sec. And my my neighbor, Ted, uh, came out, got his wheelbarrow, He's younger, stronger, harder working than I am. (laughs) He was my helper. That's exactly what this text is talking about. We need somebody at times to come alongside of us to help. Now, two applications I want to make before we move on and look at the rest of the psalm about this notion uh, of needing help. First, And these are important for us to understand as we go through the psalm because they set the stage for us to engage in it. The first application is life is often dangerous, precarious, and out of control. Life is hazardous to your health. At times, it is threatening and perilous. There are bandits in the mountains. and at times, we will need help that is beyond ourselves. We, we are not all-powerful. We are not all-sufficient. Uh, uh, we are not uh, autonomous uh, individuals that need no one else. That is an illusion. And what I'm going to argue here kind of grates against part of our cultural secular value, you know, the American myth of the strong independent cowboy type, kind of the, the mountain man myth. That's not true. We, we go through life and we're going to need somebody who, who, who at times can intervene for us. Uh, last week, uh, before Paul and Stephanie had their baby, we, the staff, threw a shower. And we were supposed to bring uh, a gift, a book, our favorite children's book. So I was down in our basement going through all our children's books. And, and I came across the book that was my kid's favorite uh, um, it, it's I can do it myself. <laughs> I read that a thousand times, I think. <laughs> My kids love that book, and basically, it's a book that teaches self-sufficiency and responsibility. You know, I I can clean up my toys. I can do it myself. I can pour my juice. I can do it myself. I can make my bed. I can do. It. You can see why I like this book, right? <laughs> It was awesome. And I'd read that to my kids, and they loved it. And I realized that not only was I teaching my kids uh, uh, self-sufficiency and responsibility, but I was also teaching them an unintentional heresy. Because really, ultimately in life, we can't do it ourselves. There's all kinds of things in life where we need outside intervention especially when it comes to the ultimate issues of life. I don't have the capacity in myself to create ultimate purpose and meaning for my life. I can't do it myself. I I don't have the power to conquer death. I can postpone it perhaps, but it's inevitable, 
inevitable. Uh, I don't have the ability to, to render forgiveness. I don't have the resources to find eternal life and ultimate peace. I uh, don't have the capability to know God. I need help, and you need help. There are moments in life where we need an Ezra. So this question, where will my help come from, is legitimate. Not simply for the pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem, but for you and for me. We need help. And here's the second lesson to take from this. Um, when we're in that position of needing help, the temptation is to turn to idols. It is very, very real. Now, now it's easy to understand why in ancient days you would turn to an idol because survival was precarious. Uh, uh, um, you know, they didn't have any of the resources we have that provides us protection. You know, there were no antibiotics. Uh, people were, were, were killed all the time. The, the age span of life was very short. Um, there was no safety net to take care of people. If you lived in that day, you were very aware of how fragile your existence was, and you knew you needed something divine to help you. So the temptation for idols was always present to look to something for protection because they needed a source of security. Well, we do too at times. It's just that our idolatry is far more subtle, more hidden, um, far more acceptable. We find alternative sources of security. Money, you know, we have savings accounts and retirement accounts and investment uh, accounts and emergencies funds. Nothing necessarily wrong with those unless they become our source of security rather than a means for God security. And then we have insurance. That's, that's a novel thing to the ancient mind. mind. Uh, uh, you know, we have homeowner's insurance, and we have life insurance, and we have car insurance, and we have disability insurance, and we have medical insurance, and we have umbrella insurance. We have a lot of insurance. Why? Because we want security. We want protection. Again, not necessarily wrong unless it becomes the source that we trust. And then we, <laughs> we live in a moment where we have amazing technology that we trust to protect us. A few years back, my heart was out of rhythm and I had to have an ablation. Do you know what they do? They take a little wire and they run it up your leg and they, they put that wire into the very middle of your heart and then they use that wire to burn little places in your heart so they can change the electrical wiring of your heart. And I'm sitting there, because you're, you're, you're not awake, but you're kind of awake. And I'm thinking, this is freaking amazing. I have a wire in my heart, and they're burning me from the inside out. <laughs> and you go into this operating room, and it really doesn't look like an operating room. It's just screens and computers, and it's amazing what we can do. We like that because it gives us security. And sometimes we trust it more than we trust our God. And then we could talk about our military might and our weapons. You know, in the ancient days, you had a bone, an arrow, maybe a club, maybe a, a spear. 
And we have handguns and machine guns and ICBMs. And it's just unbelievable how much money we as a people put into our security. Because, right, the world is a precarious place. And I'm not suggesting that's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying it is if it becomes the thing we trust rather than God. That's idolatry. So I'm just suggesting to you this morning that it's a pretty legitimate question. Where will my help come from? Where will I find my security? Well, the psalmist gives us an answer. He says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Interesting, the word that he uses for Lord here is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is kind of the personal name of God. Uh, um, that speaks to him as the one who is, or the one I am. And and that is used five times. So he's making it very clear that that the God who is the I am is the one who is going to to be my help. If we can go back to the verse for just a second. Um, So where does my Ezra come from from the Lord? And then he adds this uh, description the maker of heaven and earth. And that's a kind of a Hebrew figure of speech or turn of phrase when you would pick two ends of a continuum, heaven and earth. What you're really describing is those and everything in between. So this is a Hebrew way of saying, I'm going to make God who is the creator of everything, right? Everything from heaven to earth, everything. The creator of this this. This world, this universe of all that exists, that, that's the one who, who's going to be my help. And the notion is, is if he's the creator of everything, then he should be able to, to come alongside and be a good partner. Just thinking. Right? <laughs> so what he does in the rest of the psalm is he kind of lays out what this protection is going to look like. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. He's going to, it's like in the video, you saw that diamond, that the Psalms are like a diamond. It helps us look at things from different perspectives. And that's what this Psalm is going to do. It's talking about the Lord as our helper and just what's the nature of his protection and how constant it is and how vast it is and how incredible it is and how he, he, he watches over us. So he's, he's going to lay that out for us in a poetic way. And, and he really does something interesting. It's kind of subtle. The first couple of verses are in the first person. In other words, he says, where will I find my help? I will find my help in the Lord. And then beginning in verse 3, he changes to the second person. It's like, and he says, uh, uh, the Lord will take care of you and watch over you and keep your foot from... He changes to the second person. Now, some people think that, that there's this pilgrim and he's asking this question. And there's a priest alongside who's talking to him. And the rest of the psalm is in the voice of the priest. I don't think that's what's going on. I think the author of the psalm is talking to himself. I think he, he, he's trying to convince himself. I think he's playing through what he understands about how God protects just to bolster his trust. And it has this impact of, uh, of drawing us into the psalm. Because the you he's speaking to, well, will we become the you 
all right? So, that's the rest of the psalm. Now, a couple things about the rest of the psalm. Uh, we'll notice, we'll look at it here in a moment. The first is a key word, and it's, it's used uh, six times. It's the, the Hebrew word somewhere, or somewhere. Uh, it, it's translated watch over five times. The Lord will watch over you uh, uh, five times. And then one time it, it's translated keep. The Lord will keep you from all harm. But it's the same word. And it has this notion of watching over, keeping, or, or guarding. That's, that's the sense of, of the word. And uh, he uses this again and again to, to capture what God is doing, why he can be our help. And he does it in a very poetic way. What he, what he does is what I'm calling poetic pairings. He puts these concepts or these words together to kind of keep that notion. I'm, uh, I'm talking about everything in between. So he, he says, he will not let your foot slip and will keep you from all harm. This has to do with source. When you slip, who's at fault? Usually you. It's not something external. You slipped. You caused the problem. Uh, but keep you from all harm. Usually harm comes from the outside. So, so he's saying he's going to be your help no matter where the source of trouble comes from. And then he says, God will not slumber and he, and he will neither slumber nor sleep. He's talking about God's dependability and he's contrasting that with the idols, right? Idols of the ancient world would sleep. In fact, one of the jobs of the priest was to go wake up the idol up when you needed the idol. <laughs> uh, um, you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and he's asking, where is Baal? He hasn't shown up. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe it, it's kind of funny. Anyway, God is not that way. He doesn't take naps. He's always dependable. And then he goes on, the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. And he's, he, he's getting to this issue of time. It doesn't matter what time of life or day it is, God's still in charge of the world. And we understand the notion of sun, right? The sun can burn you. We've all experienced sunburn. What's the deal with the, the moon? Well, in the ancient world, this is interesting. In the ancient world, they thought that the moon... Could, could, could cause you psychological pro problems. You could be moonstruck. In, in fact, you, you see it in our word lunacy. comes from the Latin lunar, which is moon, right? So, so this notion is that the moon could, could attack you with, was a source of, of harm. And, and he's saying it doesn't matter whether the sun's trying to burn you or, or the moon is driving you crazy, you know? He, he will take care of you. And then he adds, you're coming and going both now and forevermore. And this has to lo lo do with location and the fact that God's concern and care for us is unceasing. So you can kind of put this all in a chart. You can go to the next slide. Yeah. Doesn't matter the source of trouble, the timing of trouble, the location of the trouble. Doesn't matter. His protection is constant. His protection is unceasing. His protection is continual. God is my helper. So here, I, I, I kind of put together the, the, the big idea for us, what the point is. Even though life is perilous, we find our help not in idols, but in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Because he is constantly, unceasingly, and continually protecting his people, whether the threat is internal, external, present, or future, here 
or anywhere. I want you to think on that for a moment. Doesn't that bother you just a little bit? I mean, is the psalmist really saying that the moment we come to God, all our problems are solved? All our questions answered, all our troubles over? Is he really saying that uh, once you know God, there's no adversity, no suffering? We Christians are among a privileged company of persons because we are children of the king. We don't have accidents. Our feet don't slip. We don't get attacked. We're protected from all harm. We don't get cancer. We don't have financial problems. We don't experience divorce. We don't have kids who rebel. That's what it says. Your foot will not stumble. uh, He is the shade, our shade under the sun. He will keep us from all harm. I mean, and the psalmist doesn't even condition it and say, it's dependent on your faith. I know this is radical, but I want to ask the question. Don't you wonder if the psalmist is just promising too much? And I ask that question because that does not fit reality, or at least doesn't fit my reality. I don't think it fits your reality. That's not our experience. Right? Our, our foot does slip. We've all been sunburned. I I don't think anybody uh, gets through life unscathed. The sun beats down on us. Uh, Sometimes the moon drives us nuts. I mean, if we're honest, sometimes it, it seems like God is asleep or at least absent. Truth is, we're not protected on our journey no matter where we go. We're not safeguarded now and forevermore. Lisa, I'm not. My guess is neither are you. I have a list. I call it my why list. And I want to share some of it with you. It's, um, this is just a part of it, okay? But these are questions I wrestle with. And they're very personal. Why did Brian have a aortic aneurysm that took his life when he was 43? Questions I want to ask God. Why did Clyde die of a brain tumor in the prime of his ministry? Why was Paul killed in a head-on collision? Why did Lori die of an overdose? Why did Herb get brain damage from a motorcycle accident that was not his fault? Why was Brad shot dead in the chest at work by someone he didn't even know? Why did John get lung cancer never even smoked. Why did Brenda die of breast cancer 
when she was way, way too young? Why did Paul die after a successful knee surgery that I guess wasn't so successful? Why did Carol get MS that eventually crippled her and took her life? All those people were believers. All those people were people I knew and all of them are people I cared for deeply. And that's just a partial list. Was God watching over them? Was God keeping them from all harm? Every time I bury a child, do a funeral for a teenager, perform a service for someone who's taken their life. Ask why. And this psalm, to be quite honest, doesn't seem very true to me. I was having a conversation with one of our staff. We were having a preaching meeting talking about... uh, the sermons that are coming, and we were talking about this this psalm, and I was asking the question, is it promising too much, and arguing my case, and one of our staff was pushing back on me, and rightfully so, and he asked me, I said, don't you think God intervenes? Don't you think God answers prayer? Don't you think God protects us? And, and I said, well, yeah, I do. I think he can. I think even at times he might. But I told him, I said, and I don't mean to play the age card, but one of the things I've noticed as you get older, you have more and more opportunities for life to disappoint you. As you get older, you get to see the brokenness and the brutality and unfairness and the precarious nature of our lives. And the more you see that God does not always protect, in fact, sometimes it seems just the opposite. So, is this psalm just uh, pious imagination, spiritualized denial, aspirational hope, uh, pie-in-the-sky religion? wrestled with this all week and I've asked myself how honest am I going to be and then I realized something this was a profound realization for me you want to know what it was here's what I realized the psalmist isn't stupid right he's not stupid he's not naive, he's not disingenuous he, he knows the reality of life, don't you think? and he knows that life doesn't really exactly fit the picture he is painting he's experienced its brutality and its hardness, he's been through famine he's, he knows there's no avoiding death, he's seen war, he's seen 
the attack of the Babylonians, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. He's watched sickness. He's seen his friends die, probably children die. He knows. That was helpful because it made me ask the question, what is he doing? I think we have to understand what the Psalms do. They are poetry, they are art. Their intent is to get us to engage and think and wrestle and reflect. In the video, put it well, the Psalms are meditative literature. They're designed to put you into tension and disequilibrium, to wrestle, not simply intellectually, but with your emotions and with your heart. They, they, they are words to be read again and again and again to be reflected upon. And we don't have to be dishonest with the text. We can say, wait a second, that doesn't match up. Because that's what the psalmist wants us to do. Because when we do that, it forces us to look harder at the psalm. So is this psalm a lie? Or is there a way that it's truth, true that God watches over and keeps us his people? But could it be that he does that in ways that we might not think? So I want to go back to the psalm, and I want to look at some of the words a little more closely. And I want to start with one that is really difficult. The Lord will keep you from all harm. When we read that, we think of harm as a physical uh, uh, accident or injury um, and that that's the promise of protection but this word harm is a fascinating Hebrew word it, it, it's actually two letters raw and it is the word that is used in scripture for evil and the first time you see it is back in the garden of Eden right when, when uh, Adam and Eve come to the tree of good and evil, good is told, evil is raw. This is not a word that literally is talking about simply physical harm. It is talking about something much deeper than that. It, it's, it's what we get to in the Lord's Prayer when we say, Lord, keep us, uh, uh, keep us from temptation protect us from all evil. The promise here isn't simply physical protection. It's that he's watching over us and keeping us from, from evil itself. Second one. You will not let your foot slip. And again, we read that superficially and we think, oh, that, that just means we'll, we'll never fall down. That's really not what it means. It's a Hebrew idiom that means to fall into evil. In other words, God is promising here something much more significant than, than simply protection from physical harm. 
think the third word that will help us, and it's core to the whole psalm, is this notion that the Lord watches over you. It's the Hebrew samra. It's translated to keep, to watch over, to guard. I began looking at this word through scripture, and I began to realize that most of the time it's used in relationship to keeping God's commands and God keeping his promises. It, it, it's not the notion of simply protection, which is how we want to read it. And I ran across a, a, an example that I think plays out the nuance of this word. Um, it's in the story of Jacob. You remember that Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older son, Jacob was the younger son, but Jacob is sneaky and he steals the birthright of Esau. And when he does that, it means he gets the inheritance of the family because he stole the birthright. When he does that, Esau is ticked. In fact, Esau wants to get revenge and kill Jacob. So Rebekah, who is married to Isaac and the mother of Esau and Jacob, tells Jacob, because she loves Jacob, that he should flee, run away. And Jacob does. And when Jacob runs away, he gets to a place where he lays down to sleep for the night and he puts his head on a rock and he has this dream and, and he dreams of a stairway going up to heaven and angels are coming up and down the stairway and then he has this conversation with God about how God is what God is going to do in terms of descendants and land and fulfill these promises to him I want you to see what God says to him in this dream. There above the, the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I am with you and will, there's our word, watch over you. Huh, wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, was God saying, okay, Jacob, you'll never slip, you'll never fall, you'll never get burned, you'll never face adversity, you'll never have trouble, you'll never be threatened, you'll never get hungry, You're, you will just live a charmed life. Is that what God was saying to him? He's watching over. You know the story of Jacob. He heads to Laban, and Laban rips him off. And instead of working seven years to marry the love of his life, he has to work 14. I mean, he's threatened by his brother Esau. Life is difficult for him. It doesn't work out the way he wants it to. He faces all kinds of adversity and trouble. And yet, we're told that God's watching over. What is God doing? God is saying, look, I have a plan for you, Jacob. No matter where you go, I'm with you. And I'm going to accomplish my purpose in you. And I'm going to keep my promise to you. See, I think what the psalm is saying is that God is watching over us. But that doesn't mean that our journeys will not be filled with hardship or suffering or danger or disappointment or tears or heartache. 
Keeping watch over us simply means that in them all, two things, he is with us and he will keep his promise to us. In other words, he is guaranteeing our destination and the fulfillment of his purposes for our lives. And the ultimate promise is restoration and resurrection. <laughs> Folks, I think sometimes we want God to promise what he does not promise. What we want is an exemption from the brokenness and hardness of life. But God does not promise that. God does not promise that we will not get cancer, never lose a job, that we'll never be in an accident. Does not promise that our kids will not struggle or go through a crushing divorce or that we will not go through a crushing divorce. He doesn't promise that we'll lose, not lose someone we love doesn't promise that we will not have a children run from the faith or that we will not face depression or be attacked or be abused or fall victim to a tragedy. He does not promise life without death or suffering or adversity or hardship. What he does promise is that in the midst of our journey, wherever he it takes us, he will be with us and watch over us, keeping us, making sure that we get to the destination he has planned for us. And in the end, the guarantee is restoration and resurrection. Quote from Eugene Peterson, just in case you think I'm crazy. The promise of the psalm, and both Hebrews and Christians have always read it this way, is not that we will never stub our toes, but that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us. That is, we'll be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. God will keep us. will guarantee the destination. After all, he's the God of heaven and earth. Ran across this this week from the Heidelberg Catechism. I thought it might be good for us to, to say this together. Heidelberg Catechism teaches the faith and gives you a number of questions and answer. I'm, I'm going to read the question and then together we'll uh, read the response. Leader, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Together, please read it with me. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely that I have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good and his purposes whatever trouble I encounter in this life. For he is able to do it, being almighty God, 
and determined to do it, being a faithful father. So we are to be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and trust our faithful God and Father for the future, knowing that nothing in all creation will separate from his love. You know, when I came back from my sabbatical, I uh, did a message about what Barb and I had been experiencing. She had an infection in her hip and it had to be taken out and uh, they give her an antibiotic that she had a really strange reaction to that basically put her in bed for weeks on end, lost 25 pounds, and she had what's called global neuropathy. We think it's from nerve damage. Uh, um, she's still wrestling with the neuropathy and having no taste and no tears and no sweat and a cough that doesn't end, and it's just been a huge struggle. One of the things I said when I came back is that I, I, I ran across this statement that I thought was true. God's love protects us from nothing, but sustains us in all things. And I got a lot of pushback. But you know what, folks? I stand by my statement. I think the wording can be tweaked. Maybe I would put it this way. God's love exempts us from nothing, but keeps us in all things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this psalm promises us that you are always there, always with us, always keeping us. It's a psalm that tells us in no uncertain terms, you're a God who can be trusted. And Lord, this morning we want to trust you. Not for a life of comfort, not for protection from all adversity, not for exemption from trouble and suffering. Father, we want to trust you for your love and your providential care that gets us to your destination for our lives and your purposes for our existence knowing that at the end there is restoration and ultimate resurrection in your glory. In this we trust. All God's people said.